Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. For fans of Anne Boleyn, the 19th of May is almost sacred. It's the day that Anne Boleyn was executed on what are generally considered to be trumped-up charges of adultery, incest and conspiring the death of her husband, King Henry VIII. For not just the Tudor's annual homage, this year we're debunking all the myths that have circulated about Anne Boleyn since that day in 1536. To indulge in a spot of myth-busting, I'm joined by Natalie Gruniger. Natalie is the author of the onthetudortrail.com website and hosts her own podcast, Talking Tudors. Next year, Natalie's running a truly unique and immersive learning experience called 365 Days with Anne Boleyn, with lectures from a bunch of people, including yours truly, Zoom discussions, reading lists, giveaways, all sorts of things. There's an early bird price until the 1st of June, 2022. Just search 365 days with Anne Boleyn. But now, for our own day with Anne Boleyn, back to those myths. Natalie, it is a joy to welcome you back to Not Just the Tudors. We're going to have a lot of fun today as well. This year, to mark the anniversary of Anne Boleyn's death, we've decided that we're going to have a chat about some of the many myths that surround Anne Boleyn. And my goodness, there are lots, aren't there? Absolutely. Hello, Susie, and hello to all your wonderful listeners. It's so lovely to be back on the podcast chatting with you. And yes, about one of our favourite subjects, I think. So you spent the last little bit of time writing a book that's coming out later this year, which is about the last year of Anne's life. Is that right? That's right. So it's called The Final Year of Anne Boleyn. And it is about the last 18 months, really, of Anne's life. So it's a a close study of that period. So yes, I'm really excited to share that with everyone. And in doing that, I guess that must have made you re-examine quite a few of the things that we say about Anne. And let's get to some of those ones in that last 18 months in just a bit. But let's start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. What what are some of the myths about Anne when she's younger that have most bothered you? (laughs) There's quite a few. Like you say, let's start right at the start. So I suppose this idea that 
Anne's story is a rags to riches story. And, you you know, we've seen this a lot in films and books. And I suppose it is used to emphasize her extraordinary rise. But I think it's also kind of linked to a couple of other myths, to be honest, to the idea that Thomas was this kind of, Thomas Boleyn, that is, Anne's father was this this kind of pimp. And that the Boleyns in some way got what they deserved because how dare they reach so high or reach too high. And I think it's also linked to that idea as well, the sort of prevalent idea that parents in the past didn't love their children as much as we do today. And for that reason, kind of sacrificed them, you know, in order for various political gains and other things. So I suppose if we look at this story a little bit first, just to dispel that sort of rags to riches story myth, we can say definitely, Susie, that that Berlin star was rising way before Henry VIII set his eyes on Anne, on Mary, and even on Thomas Berlin. And it's really the actions of their 15th century ancestors that enabled the Berlins to succeed and to thrive in the 16th century. So if we go back a few generations and look at Geoffrey Berlin, for example, which was Anne's great-grandfather, born in around 1406, he was a very successful businessman, a hatter, a mercer. He was later appointed Sheriff of London. And this was followed by quite a number of other appointments as well, including Lord Mayor of London. And it was really his success that allowed him to buy Blickling Hall, which people have probably heard of in Norfolk, in the early 1450s. That was soon followed by a number of other purchases. And in the 1460s, he acquired the beautiful Hever Castle. We should also mention that he did, in fact, marry Anne Who, who was the daughter of a very, very wealthy nobleman. And this is a theme that we see repeated in successive generations. The Berlins, they solidified and they amplified their power and their wealth through advantageous marriages and through the creation of a very impressive property portfolio. So Geoffrey's rise in success then, of course, ensured that his son, Sir William Boleyn, and his heir was also well-respected. And William goes on to marry Lady Margaret Butler. She's the daughter and co-heiress of Thomas Butler, the seventh Earl of Ormond, whose ancestral seat was Kilkenny Castle in Ireland. William diverts a little bit and instead of going into sort of business, he goes into court service and he serves both Richard III and Henry VII as well. And his eldest son is Thomas, so Anne's father, and he also follows in his father's footsteps at court. He serves Henry VII and then his son, Henry VIII. And he too made an incredibly good marriage. He, in fact, secured the hand of Elizabeth Howard, the eldest daughter of Thomas Howard, Earl of Surrey, who goes on to become the second Duke of Norfolk. So really the Boleyns owed their wealth and status to the ingenuity and the political savviness of Sir Geoffrey Boleyn the advantageous marriages that were made, of course, and to what Simon Thurley has called the careful husbandry of property. Mm. I think it's also good to note that it was the Berlin women, the wives who brought these great estates and wealth and very important connections. Absolutely. So that clearly shows that this is a trajectory and that there's no sudden achievement in Anne's generation or even in the generation before her, that of her father. And I think it's very true what you say about the way in which our ideas about the 16th century so often are formed on the basis of these fundamental myths about the past, that people didn't love their children, or in this case, kind of buying into the snobbery of either the 16th century itself, or I'd say more likely the 19th century, 
that doesn't like the shift from a tradesman to nobility. And therefore, there's a kind of way of talking about it, which is to disparage that origin story. Do you think that's the case? Yeah, absolutely. And that's what I find quite shocking when you hear people say, oh, they deserved it. They shouldn't have reached so high. They should have stayed within their own sort of status. And and it's quite shocking. But as you say, it didn't happen overnight. This was a gradual rise for the family, but it was definitely rising way before, you know, Henry sees any of the daughters. So that sort of myth that Thomas pimped out his daughters, I think is totally incorrect as well. And do you think that gets connected with how we think about Anne's character as being ambitious and that being a very much a negative word when it's applied to her? Yes, when it's applied to most women, really, because for men to be ambitious is perfectly fine. But when it's said about women, then it's sort of a dirty word or something that they shouldn't be. I totally agree with you. And it's probably linked to another myth that I know you and I like or have talked about, which is that idea that Anne grew up in this really promiscuous court in France. We've seen it on TV shows, we've read it in books, but it's just not correct. You're absolutely right. So I've seen it repeated a lot. Because in France, there is a position of maîtresse en titre, so mistress on title. And this gives a sense that Francois has taken on lots and lots of lovers. And in fact, actually, the maîtresse en titre position tends towards the opposite, because it means you have this fixed woman who has this position, which is, you know, in some ways equivalent to that of the queen. But because of that, there has been this kind of way of talking about the French court to suggest that it is completely promiscuous, um, licentious, levitious, and that in spending time at the French court, Anne picks up that quality. And you see this represented particularly in this sort of nod and wink about the special skills that we're supposed to think Anne has brought back from France. Do you come across that one, haven't you? Absolutely. And I always wonder, wonder what it might be that she's learned to do that's so exceptional. Because it's never referred to, so that you always have to think of it as this slightly tantalising sexual activity that Anne Boleyn, uniquely in all of history, developed that no one else has figured out since. But I I guess it just means oral sex. I think that's what they're talking about. I think you're right. (laughs) So again, it's about how we characterise Anne and also what people have thought about the French over the centuries, I suppose, the relationship between the English and the French and that general xenophobia. Yeah, and possibly a slight confusion about how the court functions because Anne was not in service to Francis. She was in service to Claude, his wife, known for her piety, for her intelligence, for her morality. She was greatly loved, actually, by the people. And in the time that Anne was there, Claude was pregnant a lot of the time. In fact, she had seven pregnancies over a period of nine and a half years. And she preferred to spend time at her estates in the Loire Valley, so at Blois and Ambois. And Anne, of course, would have been expected to conduct herself modestly and decorously and guard her chastity like a treasure. This is essential. And I know we've spoken before, Susie, about reputation and how important it was for women at this time. So I think when you picture, you know, all the dancing and all the flirting, most days would have been completely different. They would have been spent doing activities that were well regarded for women at this point. So, you know, we can imagine Anne and Claude's other ladies sewing, embroidering, spending a lot of time worshipping. So private prayer, public prayer, reading devotional texts, reading scriptures, discussing scriptures, going to church or the chapel, perhaps singing psalms or something like that. 
charitable works that they would have done together, maybe taking a walk in the garden and practicing or playing an instrument or just chatting among the ladies. So possibly some games as well. Anne was known for for knowing and being very good at all the fashionable games of the time, so cards, dice, all that sort of thing. But it's very different to what's often portrayed in films and books. I think that Anne may well have been present at a few of the processions and triumphal entries that happened whilst she was there in France, which Claude had, Claude's coronation, for example. Absolutely. So she's certainly seeing that kind of high end of society. And we know that she's coming in contact there and indeed before that with a Renaissance court. But that's not to say that she's coming in contact with a court that is going to make her somehow more immodest and promiscuous than she would have been if she'd been at the English court at the time. Yeah, that's absolutely right. What about the line that comes out that at this point, Anne's mother had died and she had a stepmother? Now, this one's really confusing. And I think the short answer is no evidence for this again. But um, yes, this idea that Anne's mother died in 1512, so just before Anne leaves to go to the court of the Archduchess Margaret of Austria, There's this story or legend or myth that says that her mum died. And we see this in novels. I think this is where it's come from. This is, as far as I could find, Jean Plady's Lady in the Tower. This is then repeated by Agnes Strickland in her 19th century sort of biographies of, you know, lives of the Queens of England. And later actually repeated in biographies from the 1970s. So Hester Chapman's biography I don't know what the source is that they've given for this, but we know from the records that Elizabeth Boleyn was well and truly alive until the 3rd of April, 1538, when she does die. And we know that she's buried in the family chapel or mausoleum in Lambeth. So not 1512, Anne's mother is still there. Isn't that interesting how fictional depictions of Anne Boleyn have created or informed the factual, inadvertent (laughs) commas, the factual record of her life. There seems to be this great interplay between the two. And with Anne Boleyn, as you and I well know, that when it comes to almost anything about her, you have to kind of peel back all these layers of writing and then try and find what's the original source that actually says this. And quite a lot of the time, it's castles in the air, isn't it? It really is. And it's fun doing it, but it can be quite frustrating when you discover that you've thought that something was correct and it is not. It's just been said in a very authoritative manner by a person that's very reputable. We all fall for that once in a while. We certainly do. (laughs) And I think it also comes again from these ideas about how Anne could possibly have risen. And we've had the one that, you know, she's ambitious and she's coming from a lower state. And we've had that, you know, she has these special sexual skills that she acquires in France. And then the other one, of course, is that she is a great beauty. Yep, absolutely. And I think, you know, we have Natalie Dormer and Jean-Vierre Bourgeon to thank for this and all the other beautiful actresses that have played Anne. But there are actually, this might surprise some people, there are a few contemporary descriptions of what Anne actually looks like. Most, unfortunately, come after her arrival at the English court and really they actually come when she's already involved with Henry. So it's already coloured by this kind of relationship, you know, this controversial relationship. There's only one, as you know, Susie, one indisputable likeness of the Queen, and that is a very small portrait. It's only about four centimetres in diameter. 
It is damaged. It's in the British Museum and it appears to have been a prototype produced in 1534 when they were anticipating the birth of a son. That's the only real contemporary likeness. And from that and near contemporary portraits, we get this idea of, I suppose, what she looked like, which is a long oval face, quite a strong nose and a pretty decided chin as well. Eric Ives concluded that it's a face of character, not beauty. She probably had dark, auburny hair colour. You know, a lot of people think black, that that we actually only have one contemporary account of her having black hair, and that comes later in the Elizabethan period. So her allure was much more to do with her sophistication, her intelligence, her charisma, her wit, rather than, I think, her actual physical appearance. So black hair must be from the account by Nicholas Sander. It sure is, absolutely. Should we talk about him then? Because he's such an important source for our ideas about who Anne Boleyn was and is at the root. So he's writing the first full Catholic history of the English schism, as he calls it, the break with Rome. And his central argument is that Henry decides to break with Rome because of his misguided desire to divorce Catherine of Aragon because of his lust for Anne Boleyn. And he claims that Anne Boleyn is Henry's own daughter (laughs) as a result of an affair with Elizabeth Boleyn. So if that's not raising some concerns about his accuracy, I don't know what is. But what else does he say about Anne that we need to talk about? There's quite a few things. I had to copy his quote to read to you because it's just too good not to. So he says that Anne Boleyn was rather tall of stature with black hair, so that's where that comes from, an oval face of sallow complexion as if troubled with jaundice. She had a projecting tooth under the upper lip and on her right hand, six fingers. There was a large wen under her chin, and therefore to hide its ugliness, she wore a high dress covering her throat. She was handsome to look at, which always makes me laugh, with a pretty mouth. So that's his description of Anne, and I think that's really the only description that says she had black hair. And then I think Thomas Wyatt writes a poem possibly about her where he says brunette. That's really all we have to go on in terms of hair colour. So what do you make of the later portraits of Anne from the Elizabethan period then? The argument often made is that these are based on a lost original, and everyone will be familiar with the ones I'm talking about, where you've got Anne with that famous bee pendant with her wearing a French hood. That portrait is often said to be of a lost original and therefore to give us clues to her appearance. What do you think of that, Nat? Yeah, wouldn't it be great if we found that lost original? I I find it very hard to believe that someone like Holbein didn't paint the Queen. You know, we know he was at court during her queenship. He's painting everyone else. He's drawing everyone else. I can't believe that he would not. I know we have no record of it, but I just find it very surprising, you know, if he didn't. I completely agree. We have no record of Holbein receiving any payments before 1536, so that doesn't mean anything. Right, yeah. And is such a great patron of the arts. He must have painted her. We've got those two drawings that you would know, Susie, the Holbein drawings that are both labelled Anne Boleyn and there's all debate about whether they are, whether they're not, but there's nothing definite on the matter. But I imagine that she was painted, so it's very possible that the Elizabethan portraits that do say they're based on a lost original perhaps were based on the lost original. And there's also the lovely checkers ring, of course, that listeners might know, a ring that Elizabeth I had made and reputedly wore until sort of her dying days. 
that has two little portraits in it. One is obviously Elizabeth, and there's another one that really does look to be Anne Boleyn when you compare it to the Most Happy Medal and some of these other near-contemporary portraits. People have argued that it's Catherine Parr, that it's a young Elizabeth. I think they're the main two sort of contenders, but I think it's Anne. Well, back to Sander, because here we are thinking about whether she's got sallow skin and black (laughs) hair, and actually people might have been more preoccupied by your description of the projecting tooth (laughs) or the six fingers or the large when. (laughs) Let's talk about those. Oh, I forgot the certain moles, Susie. I forgot the certain moles. of like, who doesn't have certain moles on parts of their body? You know, I think we've all got little moles, but that apparently was something notable as well. Yes, absolutely. Now, I believe that Sander saying this, Sander, a Catholic who is trying to have Elizabeth pulled from her throne and to restore the Roman Catholic rule of England, who therefore has a slightly vested interest in <laughs> in disparaging Elizabeth's mother, he's the only source, isn't he, of this protruding tooth and the six fingers? He's the only source for the protruding tooth. I did read someone else, and I can't remember, that mentioned a goiter, so not a wen. So obviously led by, by Sanders again, but he appears to be the original source. But George Wyatt, that was Thomas Wyatt's grandson, mentions a little nail on the side of her finger. Yes, that's right. So he kind of doesn't say the full finger, but he does appear to say that there was some little thing that she knew very well how to hide with the, you know, the gowns that she wore on the long sleeves. But they're the only, really the only two, yeah. Yes, so he says that upon the side of her nail, upon one of her fingers, some little show of a nail. Yeah. Which is hardly an extra finger, is it? (laughs) I know, I try to imagine it, just like a little nail sticking out. No, it's, it's really unclear, isn't it? So anyway, we're dispatching with her six fingers and her protruding tooth. Yeah. But perhaps one of the more persistent ideas about Anne Boleyn is that she is the one who is pursuing Henry, that she is setting out to steal him from Catherine. What do you make of this one? Yeah, you're right. This is a really persistent one, isn't it? And again, we see it on lots of the shows and lots of books. Again, the short answer is no. I don't think this is anywhere near the truth. I think we have to remember, because I think what happens is people tend to read this story backwards. We've all done it. We know how this story ends. We know what happens. And so we operate in reverse, where I think we need to really step into the front lines with these people and be there as they're making decisions on a daily basis if we want to actually have any chance of getting to know them and of doing them justice. So I think we need to remember that from a young age, 12 at least, we've got evidence from a letter that Anne wrote, she is dreaming of serving Catherine. She wants to serve her loyally, diligently. She wants to be a really great, perhaps, lady-in-waiting to her one day. She wants to please her parents and she wants to please the queen. She admires her. Perhaps she even loved her. You know, there's all these years that we kind of just skip over and we go to the juicy bits later. But Anne's at court from probably end of 1521, start of 1522. We know that she was in service to Catherine. Perhaps it was on and off, but she was definitely in service to Catherine at some point. They would have spent time together. They would have eaten together. They would have worshipped together. They would have played games together. There was obviously a relationship there. We hear nothing until Henry's interest in Anne, which means that things were probably going really well. Anne was doing everything she was supposed to be doing. And this goes on for, let's say, four to five years. So I think when Henry does declare his intentions, 
It's a difficult decision for Anne. I think it must have caused her a great deal of distress. She's a pious woman. She's spent time serving the Queen. I don't think it's something that she just overnight decided, I'm going to go off with Henry, I'm going to steal him. That I think is ridiculous. I don't think it's true. And I think we can see there are 17 love letters that Henry wrote Anne, some in English, some in French, they're in the Vatican. And one of them that's thought to be one of the sort of first letters, Henry says that he's basically wanting an answer from her. He's wanting to clarify what their relationship is, what it's about. And he says, having been for more than a year now struck by the dart of love. To me, this sounds like he has been pursuing her, you know, for at least a year and that perhaps Anne hasn't known how to react. Perhaps she felt guilty. You know, she was serving Catherine. Catherine was a beloved queen. At some point there's a shift, I think, and she she feels like this is her path. But I don't for a second think that she was the aggressor, that she was the one chasing him, that she was trying to steal him, that it was a, a sort of plan of her family's or, or a plot to rise even further in status. I don't think so. I mean, I think that's absolutely right. The evidence doesn't suggest it. But is there perhaps a danger of arguing out of the absence of evidence as well here? Because we don't have any of Anne's letters back to Henry, it seems to me that it is easy to cast her in a passive role and not give her any agency at all. I do know what you're saying. And I don't think she was passive completely, but it wasn't an easy decision, is I suppose what I'm trying to say. So, you know, I think there was a point where she decided that this is her path. This is what God has chosen for her, that she can do really good by Henry's side, that they can change the world, that they can create a much better England. And, you know, their subjects will, their lives will improve by having the two of them together. So I do believe she felt that very strongly. But I don't think it was a premeditated, let me steal Henry from Catherine. Gotcha. So, I mean, it feels like there's a kind of real tension there, isn't there? Because we know that Anne is a woman of faith and that is actually, well, I mean, there's another one of the things that's discussed about her. But I think you and I are both convinced by the evidence that she is someone who is interested in the new learning, the reformed religion, evangelical faith. So the sort of proto-Protestant ideas that are coming out in France. And yet at the same time, there isn't a version of the Bible that doesn't say adultery is a bad thing. So how does she square that? We don't have any evidence. It just—it seems an interesting question that she manages somehow to reach a point where she thinks that that is the right thing for her to do. Absolutely. And that's what I mean. I don't think we've ever seen that in any sort of portrayal. We've never seen Anne really struggling with that question of, is this the correct thing to do? Is this morally correct? And I think there would have been a lot of discussions, I think, with her close friends, her family about this particular subject. And she does come to a decision, obviously, um, in the end. But I just don't feel that we ever, you know, see that struggle or maybe even consider that struggle at all, to be honest. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips and adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at MintMobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... <laughs> Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Did you know that beans were once considered to be an aphrodisiac? Or that cornflakes were invented to have precisely the opposite effect? Join me betwixt the sheets. The History of Sex, Scandal and Society, a new podcast from History Hit, where I, Kate Lister, ask the questions about the stuff we didn't learn in school, or sex ed. We'll be bed-hopping around different time periods, from ancient civilizations to the Middle Ages to Renaissance and early modern right up to now. Listen and subscribe to Betwixt the Sheets, wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk about some more myths. There's several that surround Anne's relationship with her brother. So we know they're close. And in the end, this gets transcribed into incest. Yeah. There's that. And there's also one about the nature of Anne and George's relationship with George's wife, Jane. Can you talk to me a bit about those myths and what you make of them? So I think Anne and George had a very special relationship. They were incredibly close. I think they loved each other dearly. They were two peas in a pod. You know, I think having the two of them in the same room must have been overwhelming. You know, they were just incredibly intelligent, captivating, witty. And I think in the end, this really grated on Henry. I think he felt somehow diminished in their presence, to be honest with you. It's pretty ludicrous, but the only evidence that is given 
at court. And this is Shapui, used to Shapui, the imperial ambassador that's commenting on this. So this is a man that, of course, is devoted to Catherine and to the Lady Mary. Every second he's trying to improve their situation. That's what he's there for. He's just totally devoted to that. He says that the only evidence of this incestuous relationship was that George had spent a long time with his sister. This is one occasion that apparently he spent a long time with her. That's it. There's no witnesses. There's no other testimony that we know of. That's the only thing. It is just farcical, really. It is something that seems completely fabricated in the moment. Yeah, I think that's all they could get, whoever it was, Cromwell and whoever thinking, what are we going to do here? Oh, yes, George spent a long time with Anne that day, you know, because he did. He would come back from diplomatic missions and rather than going to the king, he would go to Anne. That's how close they were. That's how much he valued his sister and how much he believed in her right to rule by Henry. It's it's really touching and it's really moving and it makes this whole story all the more tragic, to be honest. But Jane Boleyn, poor Jane Boleyn, she's, she's really copped it, hasn't she, over the years? Again, the sort of myth is that they had a terrible relationship, that George and her had a terrible relationship, that Anne and her had a terrible relationship, that she was in fact the one that gave the evidence that condemned them. We've heard it over and over and over. There's just zero evidence for this. In fact, the evidence kind of paints a totally opposite picture. What we do know is that in October 1534, Anne becomes a little jealous of another woman that's at court. Henry's paying attention to her. And she enlists Jane, her sister-in-law, to help her get rid of her. So they create some sort of situation where Anne is hoping that this woman is going to be ejected from court. It goes badly wrong. And in fact, Jane is sent away. We do not hear anything else in the records, as far as I'm aware, of Jane Boleyn until late 1535. She re-emerges, and it's actually another myth, by the way. She re-emerges that possibly she's participated in this um, protest against Anne, which which I don't think is correct either. And then she's back in 1536 where she sends George a letter while he's in the tower. This idea that her and Anne had this, you know, fractious relationship, I don't know where it's come from. That's definitely not what the evidence says to us. As for George and Jane, again, there's nothing to suggest that theirs was anything but a cordial, you know, marriage and relationship. I think often because they didn't have children, People jump to the idea, okay, they didn't have children, they must have not loved each other or had an intimate relationship. But as we know, that could have been lots of different reasons. George was away a lot on diplomatic missions, especially during Anne's reign. So there can be other reasons for that. Yeah, and we have no idea whether Jane had a series of miscarriages or exactly. anything else. So we've skipped here, for those who are keeping up with us, we've dashed from the courtship towards <laughs> towards the marriage and the end of times. And actually... Personally, I think another myth is the idea that Henry gets tired of Anne, but that is a much disputed point. One thing that absolutely has to be thrown out of court at this point is the persistent idea that Anne was a witch. Who do we have to thank for this? I think you're going to recognise a couple of names that are coming up. But of course, there's also things like Harry Potter, if anyone's watched Harry Potter. She's one of the portraits on the wall, isn't she? She's one of the portraits on the wall. So people are like, oh yeah, Anne Boleyn the witch. But Let's go back a little bit. So 29th of January, 1536, quite a crucial date, actually. Again, Eustace Chapuis reports on that very day, that morning, that he's heard Henry has confessed some things. Henry's stressed, something's happened. Chapuis doesn't know what it is at this point. I think Chapuis gets it third hand, if I'm correct. Yeah, that's right. But apparently Henry, in great secrecy, has confessed that he had been seduced 
and forced into this second marriage by means of sortilege and charms, and that owing to that, he held it as null. So this word, sortilege, there's so much confusion around exactly what Henry was talking about, if Henry ever said it, because let's remember this is translated as well, and it's gone through about three different people, two different languages. So was the king implying that his wife was a witch? If he was, then it would appear to lend credence to another myth that perhaps we'll come to, which is that Anne gave birth to a baby that had malformations. Because, of course, at the time, birth defects were associated with witchcraft and sorcery, as well as kind of moral and theological and maybe sexual sins as well. But let's just go back to the witch thing. So Anne was not accused of witchcraft with any at her trial. This is not on the indictment. And Eric Ives actually says in his biography that the primary English meaning of the word at the time, sortilege, was divination. So he suggests that if Henry did in fact use this term, remembering all the people it's gone through, that he's perhaps referring to those promises that Anne had made him, the promises that she would give him sons, that their union would solidify the Tudor reign and they'd have a a whole soccer team of boys or something like that. So it's possible that that's what he was referring to and that he felt that he had to, you know, unburden himself to one of his courtiers that then went and shared the gossip that Chapuis gets. But It's Nicholas Sander as well that picks up on this, as we've already said, with his description of her with the protruding tooth, the black hair, the when. He's painting the picture of a witch because, and you touched on this before, in Elizabeth's reign, people are using Anne's memories for their own political agenda. So people that want to curry favour with Elizabeth are, of course, honouring Anne's memory and she becomes this sort of Protestant martyr and this saint. People that are trying to destroy Elizabeth and bring her down use Anne's memory in order to do that. So they try and blacken Elizabeth's reputation by saying all these crude things about her mother. So there's all that going on as well. But I think if she'd been accused of witchcraft, we would have heard about it in the trial. People like Chapuis, who's talking about what she's accused of, would have mentioned it. I think that's absolutely right. And I think that idea that sortilege in the language that Chapuis had written his letter would have meant divination is crucial But I also think that the point that you've raised about whether it was said at all is absolutely crucial, cannot be emphasised enough, because we know Shappi is reporting this, that he has been told by someone that he doesn't name, that the king has said to someone who also doesn't name this particular statement. And Shappi doesn't speak English. (laughs) So... (laughs) This is Chinese whispers. This is Chapuis hearing this, having been passed from person to person to person. And you know what happens in Chinese whispers. It all ends up being something quite different to what was originally said. And in this case, it could have just been something to put him off. So I just feel like we have to really hold this one lightly. It's so unlikely to be exactly what Henry said or what he meant. And Chapuis just sort of wants it to be true as well. And that's so important. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good point to make with a lot of the things that Chapuis says. And thank God for Chapuis, because really, without him, we'd be in some serious trouble and we would not know very much whatsoever. But I think corroborating his information or his claims is an important thing for us to try to do whenever possible. So if we're getting to 1536, let's start to think about some of the many myths that exist in this last year of Anne Boleyn's life. What are some of those that you particularly have noted? Susie, how long do you have? I hope you've got your whole day free. Let's start with after Catherine's died, 7th of January, news comes to court that Catherine has died 
And we start hearing reports about how the court has reacted to this information. So Edward Hall, the chronicler, he says that following the Princess Dowager's death at Kimbolton, she was buried at Peterborough, and he says Queen Anne wore yellow for the morning. Eustace Shapwee, talking about the exact same event, says the king was clad all over in yellow from top to toe, except the white feather he had in his bonnet. And he goes on to describe how Henry paraded Elizabeth around, showing her to everyone, and then goes dancing with Anne's ladies. And he was just in a very jubilant mood, apparently, Henry that day. And Anne as well, apparently, rewarded the servant that brought the news very handsomely and was herself apparently quite pleased. And I think, of course, this is because for the first time in her entire reign, there's only one queen in England. So I feel like we can understand Anne's kind of momentary joy because it didn't last. Very soon she realised this is a bad thing, in fact. But let's go back to the yellow. So Edward Hall says Queen Anne wore yellow for the morning. So this has brought about this idea that we see in a couple of biographies that Anne and Henry, out of respect for Catherine, wore yellow because, in fact, for example, according to Alison Weir in one of her earlier books, this was the colour of royal mourning in Spain. So I remember when I first read that, it sort of perplexed me and I thought I've never heard or seen that before. So I, I really tried to delve into it and see and I could not find anything that said to me that yellow was anybody's colour of mourning in any country. Well, this should be the point at which I confess. I remember when I wrote my book, 1536, that I read Hall and Queen Anne wearing yellow for the morning. And I remember reading Alison Weir's point about it being the colour of Spanish mourning. And I have to confess that I quoted it. <laughs> I mean, I cite her, but nowadays I'm much better at checking and going back beyond the secondary sources and checking it. I remember at the time, but I couldn't find it at the time. I remember looking but it seemed so persuasive. I thought, well, I must have just missed something. And this feels like it's such a sort of persuasive argument that I bought it. So there's my <laughs> confession that you have to, <laughs> that I haven't found substantiating evidence. And yet it seemed persuasive. So this is what I was saying earlier. You've got to peel back and keep going back to that original sources. And in this case, you haven't found anything. I didn't find anything. No, I actually emailed people in Spain. I just, I knew that the color in Spain was black. That's what they wear for mourning. It's in all the portraits. I was sort of second guessing myself because I thought, well, you know, again, this is a historian saying this, so I need to pay attention. And this was many years ago. I didn't have as much experience either. So I thought, okay, but no, I didn't find anything. I ended up reaching out to Alison Weir. She very kindly responded at that point and said that she had, in fact, made an error herself. She had thought that she'd read something to do with this, but unfortunately, she feels that she was incorrect, and she corrected it. I think in the Lady in the Tower one, maybe the, the one about Anne's fall, I think she corrects it in that one. So no, no yellow for the morning, sorry. <laughs> well, yellow for the morning, according to Hall, we do have a primary source there, yeah. but... It's just a simple factual description, isn't it? That's exactly right. And wore yellow for the morning. Yeah. It isn't saying that this had any significant meaning, that she's trying to honour Catherine's Spanishness or anything like that. No, no, that was all just kind of read into one little sentence, which is what happens, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. That's what it is, working on Anne Boleyn. <laughs> so talking about reading into little sentences, another thing that comes up at about this time, so soon after Catherine dies, of course, Anne miscarries. And one persistent idea that really was brought to fruition, I think it's fair to say, by Professor Retha Warnicke, was this idea that Anne gave birth to a deformed 
fetus. And as you've already said, this is attached to ideas of witchcraft, although I'm not sure I find that attachment that plausible. But anyway, this is attached to this idea. Let's talk about this idea and whether there's anything in it. Where does it come from, Nat? Yeah, this is such a persistent one. And again, we've seen it portrayed in different films and books and things like that. We have the wonderful Nicholas Sandor, the not so wonderful Nicholas Sandor, to thank again. He is doing his best to smear Anne's name in order to blacken Elizabeth's. And he's making all these outrageous claims. Like now we've got on top of the tooth, the when, the, you know, all that sort of thing. Now that she's given birth to some sort of monster baby is basically what he said. Actually, he calls it a shapeless mass of flesh. That's right. That's the one. They're his words, you know. And this has given rise to that story of this sort of deformed fetus story. I really can't stress this enough that there is zero, absolutely no contemporary evidence to support Sanders' theory. And let's just remind everyone that Sanders at the time is around six years old, just (laughs) in case you were wondering. So, you know, this is not something he's an eyewitness to or anything like that. He's obviously relying on things that he's heard or, or something like that. But at no point during Anne's life or Henry's lifetime or during Edwards and Mary's, for that matter, where there probably was reason to, you know, bring these stories out, did anyone comment or remark on the appearance of that baby and claim that it was in any way unusual? Eustace Shapwe comments on the fact that Anne herself thought she was about 15 weeks gone at the time. There is no comment that there's anything wrong with this baby, you know, apart from obviously the reason why she's miscarried. Yeah, and if this child is 15, 17, you know, three and a half months pregnant, Shapwe says. This is a miscarriage, and it's a miscarriage of a fetus that is not yet formed completely. The nastiness of this story really upsets me because because that is what a miscarried child looks like. And this is all coming from 50 years after Anne's death. There is no contemporary evidence, as you've said, And I find it irresponsible that this story can still be touted around as any evidence of reality. Absolutely. And just the disregard of the trauma that Anne has endured and the trauma that any woman endures in these circumstances is just, it kind of makes you a little cranky, to be honest. Well, let's move to some slightly less traumatic stories that have been passed around by Anne. But we are moving, of course, towards the, the massive traumatic event, which is her death. But there are these interesting locational errors that appear in the story of Anne's final days when she arrives at the Tower. Tell me about these and what you make of them. So the one that most people I imagine have probably heard is that following her arrest, she is taken to the Tower, which is correct. She's taken in broad daylight, which Shapui enjoys (laughs) commenting on. She only has four women with her at that point and that she's taken through the Traders' Gate. And if you go to the Tower of London today, perhaps you've been on one of the tours, the Beefeater tours, and they've said that she's coming through this gate, the Traders' Gate. This is, in fact, not correct. So we have Charles Risley's Chronicle of England, where he, in fact, specifies, I'm just looking at the quote here, it says, Anne Boleyn was brought to the Tower of London by my Lord Chancellor, the Duke of Norfolk, Mr. Secretary, which is, of course, Thomas Cromwell, and Sir William Kingston, Constable of the Tower. And when she came to the court gate, entering in, she fell down on her knees before the said lords and beseeched them, God, to help her. She was not guilty and so on. The court gate, he says. So they arrive at this particular gate 
which is also referred to as Towergate in Stowe, Stowe's Chronicle, they arrive at about 5 p.m. Now, if we look at a plan of the tower today and we compare it to a contemporary plan of the tower, we can see that this court gate was, in fact, the Bywood Tower. So she's arrived on the barge, she's climbed up the stairs there, she's gone over the little drawbridge and into the Bywood Tower entrance and then into the sort of outer ward of the court. So not through Traitor's Gate. Yes, we have to wait till Catherine Howard before we have someone going in through Traitor's Gate and St Thomas's Tower. I didn't know that. Well, we'd have to check with Gareth Russell, but that's what I think, <laughs> as I remember it. Because I know Elizabeth uses this gate as well. When she's brought in, she uses the court gate. So it's possible. I haven't looked into that one. I'm pretty sure that's the case. But there is another story about Anne, which is about where she's held and what she can see from her position. So again, I think this is something that comes out if you go on one of those tours. Where was Anne held and what do we get told about it that's not correct? I do think this originates in the sort of Victorian period where people were obsessed with Anne Boleyn and, you know, even Queen Victoria, I think, was obsessed with this particular story. And so people want to make an emotional connection. It's just so disappointing when you want to see something and there's nothing left. So the story that was given was that Anne was held in what is still there today. It's called the Queen's House at the Tower of London. And people were taken in, given tours. This is where she was kept. And unfortunately, I'm sorry to disappoint everyone, that's not where she was housed. And was, in fact, housed in the Queen's apartments at the Tower of London, which were kind of on the other side of the White Tower. That's where she stayed prior to her coronation. And it's where she stayed again during those days where she was imprisoned. I think if you've watched the Tudors, you've seen that, oh gosh, it's such a traumatic scene where Anne is looking out the window and she's just in agony. She's watching her brother George be executed. And there's this idea, and this idea comes from Chapuis. He's the only source for this. He says that to aggravate her grief, she was forced to watch. But again, get a plan of the tower, have a look at where the Queen's apartments were. They're in the southeast corner of the tower and Tower Hill, where George was executed, is the northwest area and that's outside of the tower complex up on Tower Hill. She just couldn't have seen it from her apartments. So if she did see it, she would have had to have been moved to, I don't know, somewhere else in the tower. And there's simply no record of it. The only person we know who did see something was Thomas Wyatt, who was arrested along with the other men who were arrested but isn't convicted. But he writes in his poem, the bell tower showed me such a sight that sticks in my head day and night. And the bell tower today doesn't give you a clear view of either Tower Hill or Tower Green. But that's because there were buildings put up in the late 16th century, Elizabethan buildings that would obscure the view. But he would potentially have been able to see from where he was imprisoned in the bell tower to Tower Green, where Anne was executed. So He probably saw her execution, Mm -hmm. but Anne, as far as we know, did not see her brother being executed and certainly couldn't have done from where she was staying. No, unless she was moved. But just thinking of moving the Queen and all that would have entailed a lot of paperwork and, you know, approvals. I don't know if they would have done it. Around Anne's imprisonment, we also have some stories about those women that were imprisoned with her, who attended on her, at least during her imprisonment and how she treated them. And some of this stuff is erroneous as well. What is said about this that you particularly want to contest? Yeah, this is quite passionately debated. And I actually watched 
one year, a very passionate debate between Professor Ives and Alison Weir, both on opposite ends of this argument. So it was quite interesting. So there's this idea, and this comes from a couple of quotes that refer to these women as young. So let's just keep that in mind, that they're kind of young women. So as far as the records go, the contemporary records, Kingston's accounts, he was aided by four women chosen by Henry. And we know this because Anne actually complains about the women that Henry has chosen. She says that she's upset because Henry has chosen women that she doesn't love rather than the women of her privy chamber. So we know these are not Anne's close buddies. These are other women that have been chosen to spy on her. And what we know, there was Mary Scrope, the wife of William Kingston. There was Margaret Dimmock, who was married to Sir William Coffin, who was Anne's master of the horse. There was Elizabeth Boleyn, who's the wife of Sir James Boleyn, which was Anne's paternal uncle. And then there's a Mistress Stoner, who I think I've seen three or four different names given to this Mistress Stoner. It's possibly the wife of Sir Walter Stoner, but that's not 100% sure. All we know is that it's a Mistress Stoner and there was a few Stoners around. So Kingston also records two other gentlewomen, that's all he says, whose identities just remain unknown. We don't know. So we only know these four women. And yes, Anne says that she's not really happy about this because she knows that they're a spy on her. They're not her favourites. And they are spying on her. They're spying on her day and night. They're encouraging her babbling. It's actually quite traumatic to read Kingston's accounts as well because you can see that she's suffering from shock, actually, I think. Her mood's up and down. One day she's laughing about the whole thing. The other day she's just heartbroken and she's babbling. She's incriminating people. She's incriminating herself. She's, she's handing them the case, basically. But then at the end, we get this testimony that we have quotes to say that these women are grief-stricken. They are absolutely bereft when she's executed. And what I think, Susie, is that it's not the women who changed. I think it's their attitudes towards one another that changed There's no record of the women changing. I think what happened is that this shared traumatic experience, this 17, 18 days of watching Anne, seeing what she went through, of watching her, you know, request the sacrament in her chamber, of watching her take mass and swearing that she has not, you know, that's like the the 16th century equivalent of a lie detector test. Anne has sworn in the days before her death that she has not been unfaithful to Henry. She's sworn in front of William Kingston. She's sworn in front of her women. This quickly gets sent off to Chapuis, who discovers it and comments on what Anne's done. And you can see him already thinking, she's innocent. She's innocent. And I think it's this that has changed, softened their attitudes towards her. And I think Anne's attitude towards them as well. So in the end, they do their service perfectly well. And, you know, they look after her remains and And it's all very dignified. They take her to the chapel and they won't let any man touch her or hold her. And they are upset, of course. Seeing someone be executed must be the most awful thing. So there's these women, you wouldn't describe them as young, which is what's caused the issue. There's one, maybe or two quotes I'd have to check that say something about the young ladies were bereft. So some people have said, oh, they, you know, as a kind of mercy, Henry has allowed maybe Lady Lee, Margaret Wyatt, or one of her other favourites to come. But I really don't think that's the case. That's a really interesting analysis, Natalie, of how they have been persuaded of the innocency of her cause and perhaps by her character in the days where they've been serving her. The other story that goes around is that she gave one of her ladies a prayer book on the scaffold. Yeah, and this lady is normally identified as Margaret Wyatt, Lady Lee. So that's the sister of Thomas Wyatt, who, as you said, is himself imprisoned in the tower at this point. 
unfortunately, again, it's a lovely story, makes for good, you know, television scenes and all that, but there's just no contemporary record of this event. We we talked about George Wyatt before, how he writes his, or starts writing his sort of memorial of the family and all that sort of thing and his biographies towards the end of the 16th century. He doesn't mention it. So you would imagine this is one of his relatives, his ancestors. Wouldn't he have told this story about Anne handing this book? So it appears from what I could find, the earliest sort of mention is in the sort of 1740s when an antiquarian by the name of George Virtue notes that he'd actually seen this prayer book that Anne's supposed to have given, and it was in the possession of a Mr. Wyatt. And he says that Anne gave it to the family. He doesn't actually even say that it was on the scaffold, to be honest. He just says that Anne gave it to the family. And just as an interesting side note, he also says that the wife of Mr. Wyatt, Mrs. Wyatt, owned an original picture of Anne, but we don't know what that picture was. That could be that lost original we're all looking for. It's somewhere out there. So that's the earliest that I could find of this story. And I guess what's interesting from that as well, it's become attached to different prayer books. So the legend is attached to the one at Hever Castle, but it's also attached to the one at the British Library. Both kind of claim this is the book that Anne gave, whereas, yeah, there doesn't appear to be any contemporary evidence. It's possible. You know, I'm sure she did have books, you know, that she was carrying with her, but we just don't know. Absolutely. And we need to go on the basis of the evidence. We do, we do. Finally, there are a couple of myths that we should address about what happened to Anne's body. So we know that she was buried in St. Peter Advincula at the Tower of London, but there are rumours about parts of her being removed and taken elsewhere. What are these rumours? And again, do they have any evidence underpinning them at all? Yeah, there seems to have been quite a few different rumours and stories come out after Anne's execution. So one of the legends is connected with St Mary's Church in Irwarton, Suffolk, Irwarton, Ewarton. So it's said that actually Anne Boleyn requested, apparently, to have her heart buried there after her death. And I suppose where this is found, where people have said, oh, yeah, this makes sense, is because the particular hall that was connected to this church, the house, was owned by Sir Philip Cawther, who had actually married Anne's aunt, except that this particular aunt, we have three names for her. Is she Jane? Is she Amy? Is she a martyr? I don't know, but it's one of Anne's aunts that for some reason is given three different names. They owned that particular house. And the legend goes that Anne Boleyn spent so much time there as a child. She had lots of happy memories there. And so they were the happiest days of her life. So she wanted her heart to be buried there, unfortunately zero corroborating evidence. Interestingly, in the 19th century, they renovated the church, and this is verified, and they found a little heart-shaped tin there. And it said that that was the tin containing her heart and that they reburied it under the organ, and then they put a little plaque there. I, I imagine that the plaque's still there. The house you can't visit, but the church you can. So if anyone's near there, please go and have a look and see if that plaque's still there that says that after her execution, Anne's heart was buried by her uncle, at that particular location. Another one's interesting. It says that her entire body was removed from the tower and taken to Sal Church in Norfolk. So obviously the Berlins have their kind of ancestral home at Blickling in Norfolk. So this was popularized in the 19th century and it claims that after execution, her body was removed and buried beneath a plain black marble tombstone. The church does contain actually 15th century brasses to its patrons who were Geoffrey Boleyn and his wife. So 
perhaps, but I remember when I first heard this story, Susie, I actually wrote to the church trying to get to the bottom of everything. And and they said to me, yes, this is the story. That's correct. But we will never allow anyone to come and dig up this area. They actually told me that architectural historians and other people had approached them to do a dig and they said, no way. So we might never know about that one. Well, how interesting. It seems that Anne Boleyn is a person around whom myths accrue with great rapidity and in great numbers. Yeah. So we have gone through a whole bunch today, her rags to riches, her being the daughter of Henry VIII, the promiscuous court, the witch, the six fingers, the deformed fetus, and all manner of others. Thank you so much for being our guide to the truth as far as we can access it when it comes to Anne Boleyn. It sounds like you've done such forensic research for your book, The Final Year of Anne Boleyn. So that's coming out in November. But there's also something exciting happening next year. So fans of Anne Boleyn need to note what Natalie is organising because it's something so exciting. Tell us all about it. It's called 365 Days with Anne Boleyn. The easiest way to describe it is that it's an online course. However, it's much more than just an online course, really, but that's kind of the easiest way to say it. So when you sign up, basically you're signing up to join a community of like-minded people who are passionate about Anne, and we're all coming together for 12 months, and we're going to do a deep dive into Anne's life. We're going to look at the latest research. We are going to explore everything from the, you know, her origins right to the very end. And I will walk everyone through what I've found about the final 18 months of her life for my new book. It's not about exams or, you know, hand-ins or assignments. It is about community, connection, discovery, learning together. I have also invited some wonderful Berlin experts, yourself included, Susie, I'm so excited, to contribute lectures. So, It is about sharing, it's about learning together, and I do think it's going to be a really exciting 12 months. It sounds fabulous. I've signed up as well as giving talks. I'm coming on board board. as a student because there's always more to learn. So everybody, 365 days with Anne Boleyn, that sounds wonderful. Look up on thetudortrail.com. And the final year of Anne Boleyn, everybody have a look out for that later in the year. Just in time to add to the Christmas list. And it certainly will be something I'll be getting for Christmas if I, if I can't persuade you to send me one in advance. <laughs> You'll definitely get one in advance, don't worry. Nat, thanks once again for your time. It's been wonderful to talk to you. Oh, it's always such a pleasure speaking to you, Susie. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for listening to Not Just the Tudors. Take a moment, if you would, to rate the podcast wherever you listen to it including on Spotify. It really helps new listeners find the show and we want to spread the Tudor and not just the Tudor love. And you can also have your additional weekly booster jab with our Tudor Tuesday newsletter with news of History Hit's best podcasts, articles and films. Find out more at historyhit.com. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS 
for an exclusive discount.